0: is crowned because he suffered. C.S. Lewis was asked if he would write a book about pain. And his response was, "If, if I have been asked to write a book about pain, I would like to write it anonymously. Since if I were to say what I really thought about pain, I should be forced to make statements of such apparent, fortitude, that they would become ridiculous if anyone knew who made them. That's wonderful C.S. Lewis kind of stuff, and I'm sure you didn't get it the first time. I'll read it again. (laughs) Speaking about the problem of pain, and he did eventually comply with the other man's uh, hope that he would write a book on the subject, and it is entitled The Problem of Pain. Some of you may have read it. But when he was asked, he said, I was asked leave to be allowed to write it. I I asked leave to be allowed to write it anonymously, since if I were to say what I really thought about pain, I should be forced to make statements of such apparent fortitude that they would become ridiculous if anyone knew who made them. We live in a world drenched in tears. Not very long ago on the TV, I heard about an inconsolable baby whose mother was on crack. I'm sure there are hundreds of these. My dear friend, Judy Squire, who was born with no legs. She's a lovely Christian woman, married, has several children, and she lives in California. And the first time I saw her, I was sitting in a group of women, we were all sitting in a circle, and there was one woman in a wheelchair. And I casually noted that she was sitting in a wheelchair, and then I looked a little bit more closely, and I thought it looked to me as though she might have an artificial leg. Well, a little bit later that day, I saw her walking along with a pair of crutches, and she only had one leg that she seemed to be using. And then, Not very long after that, I saw her sitting with no legs at all. So, of course, I being very blunt, I just go right directly to people and ask what's going, what is this about, you know? So I said, am I crazy or did I see you with no legs? (laughs) And she just laughed and she said, you saw me with no legs, I don't have any legs. So I said, well, didn't I see you with an artificial leg? And she said, yes, so she explained that she has artificial legs that she sticks on every once in a while, but she gets tired of them. So she doesn't mind sitting in a wheelchair. But all these amazing things, we suffer, don't we? Every one of us is required to suffer in one way or another. Sometimes it's visible to other people and most of the time it's not. But Judy Squire is one of those shining lights in my life. Another one is Julie Reynolds, and some of you may know her. She lives in Georgia, and she lives in a steel cage, just about the size of this pulpit here. It's like a steel box, and she has a beautiful face, two beautiful, delicate hands, but not much else, I mean you really can't find where's the rest of her body, does she have legs or anything, there's, there's no way at all. And the first time I saw her, she was sitting right in front of me on the first row with this beautiful face looking up at me. So I, I went and asked her questions too, and of course the answer was that's the way she was born, there wasn't anything that they could do about it, and so somebody had built this steel cage where she could be comfortable. The Lord Jesus was crowned because he suffered. And he expects us to accept whatever measure of suffering he gives to us. We live in a world drenched in tears. We think of the starving Sudanese for just one example. The idea of a loving God is not deduced from evidence even in nature let alone in human experience. And I think of my little black dog, little Scottish terrier, Macduff. He was the sweetest little dog, and I just loved him to death. And I began to notice when he was about six years old that he was having a hard time jumping up onto the chair that he always sat on the back porch. And then I noticed that when he jumped down, he would groan and I thought there's something wrong with this little dog and I took him to the vet and the vet couldn't find anything but it wasn't very long after that that I could see that Macduff could not get up on that chair anymore at all. And so one day I went looking for him in the backyard. We had a huge backyard with a big uh, fence so there was no way that he could get out but I couldn't find him any place. He just didn't seem to be in the backyard at all. And I walked all the way around the edges of the fence and we had a very big uh, yard at that time And I had to go around it a second time, and I came upon a pile of leaves with one black shining eye looking up. And this little dog had buried himself. He really didn't want me to see him die. And so he had dug a little hole, lay down in there, tried to cover himself with the leaves. It wasn't very long after that, that Macduff died, and of course that was a very great sorrow to me. You look into the face of a little dog that you love and you think, what is he thinking? Why did God make this little dog? For those of you who love dogs as much as I do, I hope that you believe as I do that they're all going to be in heaven. (laughs) All God's animals are going to be in heaven, whether we like them or not, but they're all going to be transposed and transformed as you and I are going to be. I really do believe that. The Bible says, everything that hath breath shall serve the Lord. In one of Ivan Karamazov's books, he puts a question to Alyosha, who is a Christian, and recounts the story of a little girl who was five years old, subjected to every possible torture by her cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise and I won't read you the rest of it. It's really too horrifying. But this one man, this brother Alyosha, is talking and saying, he says, do you understand that, friend and brother, you pious and humble novice? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? And who of us has not wondered in our quiet moments why does God permit these horrible things that go on? And Alyosha says, I hasten to give back my entrance ticket. It is not God that I don't accept Alyosha, only I must respectfully return my ticket. Tell me yourself, I challenge you, answer. Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last, but that it was essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature, that baby beating its breast with its fist, for instance, and to found that edifice on its unavenged tears, would you consent to be the architect of these conditions? So these are two brothers, one who loves God, the other one who doesn't believe there is a God. Tell me, he says, tell me the truth. Well, one day, my little daughter was about two years old, and she asked me the question that I knew she was going to ask me one time. She said, why did God let my daddy be killed? And what was I supposed to say to that? I could only say, we don't know most of the things God does. He doesn't explain them to us. But he says to us, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? And, of course, I taught Valerie to sing. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because everything works so wonderfully well? No. For the Bible tells me so. And that satisfied her. And I told her, God will take care of you. He's going to take care of you and me. But he didn't take care of my daddy, she says. Yes, he did. He needed your daddy in heaven. Oh. She thought that one through for a while. Now, is there an answer to this question of suffering? In Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9, we read, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Just think, of the Son of God having to be made perfect through suffering, as though he were not Perfect. To begin with. We all know that we are not perfect. So when we say, I don't know why God's doing this to me, well, who in the world do we think we are? That we can figure out why God does these things to us. Is it any of our business, all these whys? No, it's none of our business. He has made it perfectly clear, if you want to be my disciple, give up your right to yourself. Take up the cross. What is the taking up of the cross? But the continual daily practice of small duties, which are distasteful to you. Taking up of the cross. Small duties, which are distasteful to you. Now, there are some big ones, too, that you know about, but most of us can recognize the fact that day by day, there are some small duties which we really don't want to do, but we have to. Okay, all of that is the beginning. Now, number one I will give you, necessity. There is a world to be redeemed from pain in the end, but it can only be redeemed through pain, Christ's pain and ours. I'll read that again. Necessity is number one. There is a world to be redeemed from pain in the end, but it can only be redeemed through pain. Christ's pain, and he bore all of it on the cross of Calvary. And our pain. And the Bible says he saved others. Himself, he could not save. There are mysteries here, aren't there? Profound mysteries, which we will never unpack. But when we see him face to face, we'll know. And he looks at us with such tenderness and such love. And he says, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? Now that I've given you the conditions of discipleship, give up your right to yourself, take up the cross and follow. That's from Matthew sixteen twenty-four, And those conditions are unequivocal. We are not to try to figure them out. Redemption, according to the scripture, is accomplished only through agony and death. He saved others. He could not save himself. But who of us has not in our weaker moments looked up and said, why me, Lord? Well, why not me? Ours is suffering and adversity, and there is no... Escape from it. Jeremiah 12.5 says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? That's Jeremiah 12.5. You can look it up. And Amy Carmichael, a woman who scoured the very depths of sorrow and pain, she wrote this beautiful poem. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar, no wound, no scar? Yet, as the master must the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Number two is a gift. Number one was necessity, number two is a gift. In Isaiah 53, we have a beautiful chapter. I haven't got time to read all of it, but it is, in a sense, horrifying because it predicts what is going to happen to Jesus himself. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And skipping over to verse 10 in Isaiah 53, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant. Will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. That means all of us. And he made intercession for the transgressors. We're a bunch of transgressors here this morning, aren't we? Who of us has not transgressed? time and time and time again. Well, the Father's gift, this is all from Isaiah 53, he allowed his son to be put into the hands of wicked men. It says in Acts 2.23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Acts 3.15 says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Wonderful. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So if something untoward, something that you can't fathom or figure out, it might be in the category of something being given over to death for Jesus' sake. We don't have to know all the whys and wherefores. Something strange has happened in your life, and I'm sure there are many of you sitting there thinking, I don't know why in the world the Lord did this to me. I don't understand anything about it. Oh, Elizabeth Elliot, she gets up there and she socks it all to us and we're supposed to swallow that kind of stuff. Well, yes, we are. We're supposed to swallow that kind of stuff because where did I get it? Right out of this book right here. Paul says we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake and may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are given over to death, not only to believe, but also to suffer. And Paul says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, as though it is a particular, uh, what shall I say, a terrible thing which God has ordained way back in Paul's day he's talking about, but it's something which is a daily thing that you and I have to face in some way, in some form. And only God knows what your particular trial and tribulation may be. I don't think I have ever had to fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That seems way beyond me by any means. But this is Paul, the great apostle. But then for you and me, we don't have these great tests which compare with the passages that I read to you from Isaiah and from Paul. But there will be something smaller. And you remember in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he's talking about all the trials and tribulations that he went through. And he boasted about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I've been flogged, I've been exposed to death, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, danger in, from bandits, danger from my own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at, at sea, and danger from false brothers. I mean, we might say Paul's been through the ringer, hasn't he? But that's not all. He says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. And verse 33, this is funny. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. You just want to cheer for that one, you know. After all this stuff, and here the governor thought he was going to do, get him, and Paul was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. But chapter 12 takes us into an even stranger place. Paul says, "To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations." It was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now who would give Paul a thorn in the flesh? It sounds to me as though it's something that God deliberately did. He says it is a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now it's not God who torments him, but it is God who allows him to be tormented. So it was Satan, of course, a messenger of Satan, was sent to torment me. So what does Paul do? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And how many times have you pled with the Lord to take away something or some impossible person in your life? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but in verse 9 it says, he said to me, My grace is all you need, for power comes to its full strength in weakness. Just think, this is this powerful man, Paul, and the Lord is speaking to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. Is there someone here who thinks that God's grace has not been sufficient for you? Think about it. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, suffering is never for nothing. Malcolm Muggeridge, that brilliant Englishman who became a Christian late in life, he said, supposing you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be because everything that corrects the tendency of man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. And I love the poems of Martha Snell Nicholson. Some of you may have come across them. I think she's been with the Lord for many years. But every now and then I come across another one of her poems. And here she's talking about this thorn that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. And she says, I stood a mendicant of God. And I would guess that maybe Half the group here are not quite sure exactly what the word mendicant means. It just means a beggar. So let's say I stood a beggar of God before his royal throne and asked him for one priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, hurtful gift that thou hast given me. And the Lord's answer is, my child, I give good gifts and gave myself to thee. I learned, Paul says, I learned he never gives a gift without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. Isn't that beautiful? It's worth repeating. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and asked him for one priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift that thou has given me, my child, I give good gifts and gave my all to thee. I learned he never gives a gift without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. Now, suffering is never for nothing. Remember that. It's never for nothing. No matter where it comes from, why it came who did what to you? Who said what to you? Funny at church last week. What in the world did she mean by that? You know this kind be... Who does she think she is? Well, that's suffering, isn't it? You go home, livid, mad, ready to tear into somebody. It's never for nothing. It's in the deepest things and the hottest fires, the deepest waters. In your marriage. You thought you got the most perfect man in the whole wide world. And about 24 hours after the wedding ceremony, (laughs) several strange things appeared. You knew this guy for three years before, and you thought he was the most wonderful person in the whole world. And within 24 hours, everything disintegrates. And you think, what have I done? And of course, one of the things you've done, you've probably cried. I have four brothers. All four of my brothers have told me that on their wedding day or wedding night, their wives burst into tears. (laughs) And they all came to me and said, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Well, I couldn't tell them very much because the women don't usually know why they're crying. But... These strange little things that happen. Marriage, that's bad enough. Then motherhood. (laughs) And the Lord takes us step by step by step. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what tests you need, how many different thorns. God knows. Suffering is never for nothing. Remember that if you forget everything else I tell you this morning. Suffering is not for nothing. The deepest things, the deepest waters, the hottest fires are the greatest gifts. Widowhood. I've been widowed twice. Am I lucky? Am I blessed that I have now a husband who, as far as I know, is still alive? <laughs> but you can imagine how many single women have come up to me and said, I don't understand why in the world the Lord gives you three husbands when he's never given me a date? What on earth am I supposed to say to that? I was never a popular girl in, in grade school, in high school, in college. I was not a popular girl. I've never been beautiful. How am I supposed to know why God gave me three husbands? I do not know. I just know that God knows exactly what he's doing and he's gonna give you what he knows is best for you. And I have been tremendously blessed by a number of strong single women who have accepted their singleness. It doesn't mean that God might not give them a husband when they're 55 or something, but they have accepted their singleness. This is the only day you have, so I have no idea how many singles I'm looking at here, but you're here on this particular Saturday Yesterday is gone, you have no idea that you're gonna be alive tomorrow. Can Can you not make up your mind immediately to say, Lord, I am going to glorify you in my singleness? Whatever, deep things, hot fires, whatever. The deepest testings of the reality of my commitment to Jesus Christ have been the deepest waters. Why should we be surprised? God's loving design for my own life is comprised of pain. Out of that pain has come the strongest conviction that God is love. Think of the people whom you have blessed, the the most godly people, the ones who have shown the the Lord Jesus, the face of Christ, every single one of them, if you had the opportunity to delve into their lives, you would find that they have suffered. It's required of all of us. God is love. Out of our pain comes the strongest conviction that God is love. And during my second husband's long illness, he was an angry man for part of that time. He was a very powerful man. He'd been the president of Pittsburgh Seminary. He had been all over the world. He'd been a very popular speaker. His name was Addison Leach, and he got cancer. And as we walked out of the doctor's office, having received that news, he quoted the first lines of Gray's elegy, the curfew tolls the knell of parting day, and he knew that he was gonna die and he got very, very angry at God. And of course, that made him all the more miserable. And it wasn't until just a few weeks before he died that he was able to say, yes, Lord. He was such a strong man, such a powerful man, such a man who was so loved and so looked up to. God's loving design for your life is comprised of a measure of pain, and it will be measured precisely to your needs. So now number three, the presence of God. If you've lost place, number one is necessity, number two is a gift, and number three is the presence of God. And I love what Janet Erskine Stewart wrote, joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. And you know, Satan sh- shouted to God, to, to Jesus, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Did he come down? No. The father was with him. The Bible says, reconciling the world to himself. And Jesus cried that cry of dereliction when he said, Why hast thou forsaken me? It was in his human agony, right down where you and I are. But of course, we will never know the kind of agony that he knew. But we can remember that that's what he cried. Why hast thou forsaken me? The presence of God... Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest to lift a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. And one of my favorite verses is Isaiah Isaiah 43. This passage came to me when... I knew that my husband was missing, my husband Jim. I didn't know whether he was alive or dead. It took about five days before we found out what had happened to the five American missionaries. And in those very dark nights and just seemingly impossible things that were going on, these were the words that kept me and helped me. Isaiah 43:1, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, when, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord your God." I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So I don't know what fear you may be harboring in your own life today. I don't know what you may be dreading going back to at home or tomorrow or next week or whatever. But I know the one who knows. And he has promised to go with you through the valley. And he says, I will never forsake you. And you know, in English... We can't have five negatives in a row. But in the Greek, there are five negatives in that sentence. I will never, 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 never forsake you. Isn't that wonderful? Are you going to believe that when everything crashes down and collapses around you? Remember the five negatives. You don't have to know the Hebrew, all you have to know is that that's what it says. God's presence was not Jim's presence, my husband Jim. He wasn't there anymore. God's presence did not change the terrible fact of my widowhood. Jim's absence forced me, thrust me, hurried me to God, who was my hope and my refuge. Jim's death taught me what I could not otherwise have ever learned. And God says, I am the great I am. An irreplaceable medium for an indispensable revelation. Now, I know you couldn't have gotten that down real fast. But you can put I am at the beginning. The irreplaceable medium for an indispensable revelation. All of this is to be gathered up. We can't wait for that day when we're gonna hear the trumpet sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed, how wonderful that will be. But in the meantime, Romans 8, verses 18 to 21, tells us what Paul has to say. I reckon that the sufferings we now endure bear no comparison with the splendor as yet unrevealed which is in store for us. Do we sometimes wish that there was a better word than just suffering? Well, I have a definition of suffering, having what you don't want, (laughs) or wanting what you don't have. That pretty much covers it, I would think. So in these sufferings, I reckon that the sufferings we now endure bear no comparison with the splendor as yet to be unrevealed, as yet unrevealed, which is in store for us. For the created universe waits with eager expectation for God's sons to be revealed. It was made the victim of frustration, not by its own choice, but because of him who made it so yet always there was hope because the universe itself is to be freed from the shackles of mortality and enter upon the liberty and the splendor of the children of god and that is from romans 8:18 8, to 21 and i want to tell you just a little glimpse of what what it was like when i lived with the indians who had killed my husband I had the privilege of living in a house exactly like theirs, and it was six poles with a thatched roof, no floors, no walls, no furniture. I slept in a hammock. My daughter slept on a slab of bamboo underneath my hammock, and I had a fire where I could reach out of my hammock and keep it going, just like everybody else. And the Lord just brought to my mind, Some wonderful passages then that I began to memorize. There were wonderful things, There were fun things that I learned from these dear people who had killed these five men because they thought the five men were gonna eat them. That was the only reason they killed them. They were not bloodthirsty themselves. But when I was living there feeling absolutely helpless, of course I couldn't speak their language at all. It wasn't anything like two other Indian languages that I had learned. This is what the Lord reminded me of. Let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, this body of ours, it's nothing but a clay pot to show that this all-passing, this all-surpassing power is from God. And not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And here's verse 10 from 2 Corinthians 4. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest or easily seen in this mortal body for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body so then death is at work in us but life is at work in you and I had to believe that this seemed like a absolutely total impossible thing that God was asking me to do to learn this language to teach these people what the Bible is about And it was just as if the Lord was saying, I want you to get this straight first and then I'll help you with all the rest. My topic was crowned because he suffered. Let's never forget the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. He hung on that cross. He cried the cry of dereliction, but he loved us with an everlasting love. Jesus, loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath, are the everlasting arms.